Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Garden Better, your garden and garden lifestyle podcast from Better Homes and Gardens magazine. I'm Adam Woodhams, garden lover, horticulturalist and garden traveller. And that's what our next two special episodes are all about. Nearly 10 years ago, I visited Norfolk Island covering a story on sustainable gardening in remote communities. And I just fell in love with the place. It's fascinating and beautiful on so many different levels. Scenery, environment, the plants, the culture, the people, the food, the history. And I've got to say, I just love the history side of it because I am a bit of an Aussie history nerd. Since my first visit, I've been back many times. I've written and photographed a heap of articles, shot a few videos for my YouTube channel, and now I host Bespoke Tours out there. On my most recent tour, I packed my microphones and recorded a heap of interviews for the show. So in this first episode, I give you a bit of a backgrounder on the island. We look at the unique flora of Norfolk Island, talk ethnobotany, that's the living heritage of plants and I go totally bananas well with a bit of help from my friend Jane so without further ado ease yourself back into that comfy lawn chair and enjoy the first of our two special episodes of Garden Better On Australia's east coast, draw a line roughly east from Byron Bay and at the 1400 kilometre mark, around halfway between New Caledonia in the north and New Zealand in the south, you find a green jewel sitting alone in the South Pacific. This is Norfolk Island. At around 38 square kilometres, 8 kilometres by 5, this tiny landmass is incredibly rich in natural wonders and history with a truly fascinating mix of cultures. Its history is an integral yet little-known part of Australian-European settlement, yet it also has its own unique historical, natural and cultural narratives. Ask just about anyone who has even the slightest understanding of the history of European settlement in Australia and they'll give you the textbook story. 1788, the first fleet arrived loaded with convicts. They settled in Port Jackson and went on to prosper, that one colony ultimately being the birthplace of the nation we know today. But that's really only part of the story. What very few people know is that the first fleet had its second mission. Settle the recently discovered Norfolk Island with a view to establishing both a productive colony and a naval port. And funnily enough, a lot of this was all about the plants. Just six weeks after arriving in Port Jackson at Sydney Cove, 23 settlers, a mix of convict men and women, soldiers and free settlers, led by Lieutenant Philip Gidley King, later to become Governor of New South Wales, left for the island. Now to put all of this 18th century settlement into a 21st century perspective, if you looked at the colony in Sydney as being akin to travelling to and setting up camp on the moon, this small contingent going off to Norfolk Island would be something like heading off to Mars. They were a really, really long way from home and very, very alone. The tiny colony of Norfolk Island got off to a flying start. In fact, it prospered while the primary colony in Port Jackson plunged towards starvation and failure. You've probably never heard about it, but the fact is that Norfolk Island became critical in providing provisions to the main colony back in Sydney. Many say that the island prevented the abandonment of the Sydney colony, keeping it afloat until it was able to stand alone. 
This little satellite colony wasn't so much a prison as a prison farm, and they had quite a few free settlers too, but they did still have a few objectives to tick off on their mission list. The first one of those was to see if the local Norfolk Island pine, the endemic Araucaria heterophylla, could be used for masts and spars on naval vessels. Unfortunately, the timber just wasn't up to the job. Nice for cabinetry, not real good for masts. The second was to see if the local variant of New Zealand flax, Formium tenax, could be easily processed to convert it into cloth and ropes, again for military use. Unfortunately, they found it way too difficult to process. And the third one was to establish a port of some sort on the island. And even sitting here today in 2019, they don't have a port. Now, despite the colony being quite successful, they decided in 1814 that it was to be abandoned. And really, this was largely political because they hadn't ticked all of those mission boxes. Any remaining prisoners were transferred off the island. Free settlers were offered land grants elsewhere. Most of the buildings were burnt to the ground. The animals allowed to run free. Crops went wild and the island fell silent. As time passed, new settlements followed, including one from 1825 to 1855, a truly horrendous prison often called the Hell of the Pacific, a prison that was never about rehabilitation, only about extreme punishment. Conditions were so incomprehensibly bad that the prisoners mutinied knowing they would face the death penalty. They considered this a better fate than remaining incarcerated. And yet, despite all of this, they managed to construct some of the finest Georgian buildings you're ever likely to encounter that still exist on the island today. Then in 1856, a fascinating group, the descendants of the infamous bounty mutineers and the Tahitians who had accompanied them, came to the island from the Pitcairn Islands to make a new home. Today, those bounty descendants make up a large part of the population, with bounty names like Christian, Adams, McCoy and Quintal filling the local phone book. Aspects of Tahitian culture are being relearned and revived. They have their own distinctly unique culture and even their own language, Norfolk. The island is shot through with their stories as well as the stories of those before them. It'd be fair to say that plants, horticulture, agriculture and gardening have been woven through all of this culture and history. They're an integral part of the past and the present. So come with me as we explore just a little of this incredible island and all it has to offer. For a small island, Norfolk has a surprisingly large number of native plant species, many of which are found nowhere else on the planet. From towering trees to delicate ferns, there's beauty and uniqueness everywhere you look. To really take a deep dive into this amazing flora, I've headed up to Norfolk Island National Park and found senior ranger Joel Christian and Mark Scott, native flora specialist from Parks Australia. Now, Joel, firstly, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about Norfolk Island National Park. The Norfolk Island National Park was declared in the mid-80s, so it's 35 years or so now. Um, The main part of the National Park on Norfolk Island is uh, 490 hectares, and out at Phillip Island, which is also part of the National Park, it's 190 hectares. And you do only have quite a small team working here, covering quite a large area and some pretty rugged terrain. Very much so, Adam. We have six staff, including the park manager, and two or three contractors who do various activities, and that includes Mark, who does the flora project. Mark, can you give us a bit of an explanation on what it is you do? Because it's a very, very special project from the sound of it. Yeah, sure, Adam. So my project focuses on particularly five of the endemic threatened species, but also producing 
plans for the Norfolk Island National Park to plant out in their national park. And that brings us to a really important point that folks will undoubtedly know the iconic Norfolk Island pine, Araucaria heterophylla, and they might also know the pink flowering Norfolk Island hibiscus. The island is home to a lot more native species than that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think there's around about 43 endemic plants. 15 of those are listed as critically endangered. Which is a quite an amazing number and I imagine that part of that is the fact that the island is a small place so these species have evolved somewhat in isolation and then you end up of course by virtue of that size they therefore are obviously going to become threatened and endangered. Yeah, well, through things like habitat loss and human development, yeah, a lot of these things have been encroached on and therefore, yeah, because of their population size, are suddenly very, very endangered. And we should explain that Norfolk isn't just a single island and it's an island group and this makes a difference in the flora too, doesn't it, Joel? Yeah, that's right. Norfolk Island is recognised as being a subtropical island and it's part of a bioregion which includes Lord Howe Island to our west, Norfolk Islands in the middle and the Kermadec Islands to the east which are above New Zealand there and that presents specific interesting things about a particular climate particularly for an ocean area. And those two local islands Phillip Island and Nepean Island they have some great challenges because for instance uh, Phillip Island was virtually denuded of vegetation and you're trying to bring that back to a fully vegetated state. Absolutely it's a really interesting case actually because it's like starting with a clean slate. During the convict times they released goats, rabbits and pigs out there and it wasn't until the early 80s basically that the last of the rabbits were eliminated from Phillip Island so quite a success story in that fashion. There's been over three metres of topsoil lost from out at Phillip Island and of course with that most of the vegetation that was there. So we're in our operations with national parks we go out and do weed control and also trying to do specific planting that's going to increase the um, diversity of the island and hold that soil down so and it's very yeah it's a challenge. It's certainly working. I've been travelling to and from the island for about 10 years now and in that time I've I've seen the island go very much from uh, looking out towards it. You could see there was a lot of enormous bare patches to now there's distinct areas of vegetation cover starting to slowly creep down over the island so it's really working. Now Mark I mentioned the two big headline species before that folks know. How about some others that you reckon are really worthy of mention? Probably my fave would be the bastard oak the Ungaria floribunda. It's a bit of a a mystery because it's a monotypic genus so there's nothing else like it in the world. We can't google how to make the seeds pop up and how to propagate in other ways so we're we're learning a lot about that one in the last year or so since I've been doing the flora project. Um, Seeds don't seem to germinate very well. We've just had a few pop up and I mean three seeds out of about 60 seeds pop up so that was a bit of a bit of a surprise and a success yeah very much a mystery that one and beautiful big tree gets huge beautiful flowers it's it's probably my favorite there are some really nice ones some of which I know funnily enough the Phillip Island hibiscus the hibiscus insularis is still quite endangered and threatened on the island but if you can find it on the mainland if you visit the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney they've got some beautiful hedges cut from it so you can end up with some rather strange situations where it's endangered locally but being grown on the mainland but it's a fantastic one that I think deserves a lot more cultivation it has wonderful little colour changing flowers that are absolutely gorgeous now one that I find quite interesting as a horticulturalist with an interest in Australian native flora is that some of the big families we're used to seeing in Australia don't 
seem to be represented out here, not naturally represented. So, for instance, the Myrtaceae, the gum trees and the lily pillies, family Proteaceae, so you don't have things like Grevilleas and Banksias. It's interesting. This obviously tells us something about the development of the local flora as to whether it was from the Australian mainland or from the ridge of islands that there's an association with. What's the, the general thought on that? Well, as a bioregion, there's plants and species that occur in Lord Howe and the Kermadec Islands, but also our vegetation is much more representative of the, what you might see in New Zealand or indeed in New Caledonia. So in talking about the Norfolk Ridge, which extends from the tip of New Zealand to New Caledonia, we have a lot of things that are related or indeed look similar. So we suspect that our Norfolk Island pine is actually descendant from the some of the New Caledonian pines. And there's where New Caledonia has maybe half a dozen types of um, particular things like the... Um, mountain rush we have one so there, there's obviously there's been visitors coming to the island be they birds or people over the many many thousands of years and we've ended up with some really unique species here that have more influenced by the pacific than australia and I think it's worth remembering too that, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, the ocean levels were 100 plus metres lower. So the, the idea of transport between the, the islands would have been quite different because I believe Norfolk at one stage would have been at least 35 kilometres by about 20 in size. So obviously you then, along that ridge of islands, it wouldn't have been these vast distances that we're used to today. So there was a chances for things to transfer a lot more readily. But I find the, the local New Zealand flax a very interesting one because as a, as a horticulturalist, as a gardener, I look at it and straight away recognise it as, as having different characteristics to the classic uh, New Zealand flax. It definitely has differences in its form, but by all its, its major characteristics, it's basically the same plant. So that's obviously a, an attribute of that separation if it did start from New Zealand it's been separated for tens of thousands of years and been able to develop its own slightly unique characteristics in the local area now if folks want to have a good look at the uh, flora on the island and and see a lot of the wildlife too because there's some very special wildlife in fact I'll, I'll digress for a moment and and ask how the local green parrot's going because the the Norfolk Island green parrot is in fact one of the rarest birds in the world yeah that's right we can't be certain, but we think we may be above 400 birds now. Four or five years ago, when a survey was done, we had 47. And seven of those could be confirmed to be female. So the bottleneck situation of genetic viability of birds and plants is quite pronounced here in such a small place. But the green parrot, through a lot of effort, through... Um, a lot of very detailed management systems have been really able to get some good numbers back. So it's very encouraging. And if folks did want to get a, a decent look at, at flora and fauna, what's your favourite spot to go and have a look at, Joel? Oh, there's too many to mention, mate. <laughs> there's so many. Um, I think one of the great viewing areas is the Captain Cook Memorial because you see you, the cliffs around Norfolk are very high and you get a lot of um, seabirds coming in starting about now. So it's really good viewing for seabirds. But then it's only a short walk into various parts of the National Park. And Mark, do you have a favourite corner? Phillip Island's a good one. It's, it's amazing the way it is coming back in the last 30-something years, uh, getting revegetated again. The amount of seabirds over summertime is incredible. It's just loud out there. Um, yeah, a few things like the Phillip Island hibiscus out there coming back. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a spectacular place to, to enjoy a bit of wildlife. 
Thanks, Mark and Joel. If people are visiting Norfolk Island, make sure you head up to the Botanic Gardens because that's where you'll find the Rangers headquarters and these guys can give you some great advice on everywhere you can visit on the island where they've got maps on all the tracks and uh, can give you the tips on where you might be able to spot that elusive green parrot. And if you're not on island, then you can find out more about the park by visiting parksaustralia.gov.au backslash Norfolk. Norfolk Island has its own unique flora, but there's another interesting layer to that too. From the very earliest days of the first fleet as arriving, food has been grown here. The island may have been a prison farm, but we forget that it was basically run by public servants, so they kept very accurate records, allowing us today to know what they planted, when and how successful it was. Everything from grains to veggies and herbs to fruit trees were all planted, with every subsequent wave of settlement adding to this. Food plants that today we'd describe as heirloom varieties still exist on the island. Rachel Neighbour is a specialist tour guide and storyteller here on Norfolk Island. She's deeply passionate and knowledgeable about the island's history and she has a great interest in its cultural and historical connections with plants, otherwise known as ethnobotany. Rachel, welcome. Thank you, Adam. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. We're eighth generation islanders now, descended from the Bounty Mutineers and their Polynesian partners. And uh, somehow I've morphed into a, a storyteller and a tour guide and I get to drive around every day and share with our visitors my deepest passion which is the island and its history and its stories. It is fantastic to go on a tour with you and the depth of knowledge is just wonderful. Now tell me, ethnobotany, how did you become interested in that? It's really hard to say how, how I ever did become interested in it. but. We grew up with our grandparents and uh, as we're sitting here today looking at this most beautiful picture in front of us, I realised that somehow in trailing my grandparents around that they instilled in us an appreciation for the everyday. So uh, you know, my grandfather constantly uh, tended a garden th throughout his whole life. He was a forester. Um, my, my grandmother was a fabulous rock fisher, fisherman and, and, a, and a cook, so they lived close to the sea and the land. It, it, was, it was vital to, to how um, our family has survived and thrived over generations. And that's where it becomes more than just about the plant or just about its use. It becomes deeply ingrained with everything you do, doesn't it? It's that whole cultural side of it, the way it interweaves with a sense of self and the sense of community too, isn't it? Yeah, it is your self-identity, it's your story, it's your cultural history, um, but it's also, we've kind of grown up with the idea that we could survive with someone to one day completely unplug us from the outside world. We could still plant sweet potatoes, we could still go fishing, uh, we, we could still make our, our twine, um, we could make our baskets, we could make our brooms, we could make our hats, we could make our mat. Everything is here. Uh, everything that we need for life is already here. It doesn't come in on the ship or the plane. If the plane stopped and the ship stopped, we would still be okay. Mm, and, and there is that there is that intrinsic thread that runs through island life. It's remote and it's precarious, but there is still enough traditional knowledge, a, a repository of traditional knowledge that that we would survive. And it's a very important thing. It's important to know that tomorrow there will still be sweet potatoes and bananas. Mm. 
Well, it's interesting because a, a visitor today would look at a lot of what happens on the island and see it as sustainability, but reality is it's it's grown out of a history of subsistence farming, hasn't it? That subsistence farming by itself is a sustainable practice because you obviously don't want to damage your land. You obviously want to preserve all of the, the crops that you want to grow for, for seasons to come. So we still have heritage seed savers. We have people that put seeds, you know, their pawpaw seeds, their pumpkin seeds, their melon seeds out, and their corn out to dry every year for the next season. So these, these heritage farmers have uh, come from a, a number of generations. They've been doing it for generations. They have little microclimates on their property. They know this is where the pawpaws will thrive. This is where you'll get the best crop of yams or sweet potatoes. This is great for taro. It's, the intimate knowledge that comes with generations of living on the land, working the land, living, uh, living with the sea and uh, living with the seasons. So the islanders, I remember once um, one of the older islanders came up to me and said, there's a white, white bird up country. Um, it means uh, in September, it means we'll have a very, very dry summer. And lo and behold, we have a very dry summer. <laughs> and it's amazing, the settlement, the European settlement of the island, and how much they've grown and how quickly they got into it. I found this when I was doing some research that, you know, the first fleeters arrived on the island and within four days, in, in 1788, they were basically planting everything like potatoes, yams, lettuce, spinach, cotton, sugarcane, coconuts. I mean, that must have been a bit of a try it and see approach when they were, they were doing that. And some of that, I suppose, has survived through to today. Absolutely. And you know, you don't know when that ship will come back. You don't know what it will contain. You can't guarantee that your first crops are going to be successful. And as Tom Kennelly said, it was a commonwealth of thieves. So store security mm. is absolutely paramount. And what is interesting about the difference between European settlement and Polynesian or Anglo-Polynesian settlement, which is our story, is the, a lot of the European crops are above ground and they were attacked very quickly by the, the parrots and the grubs. And so Philip Gidley King set the convict women to picking the grubs off, the emergent crops. Whereas a lot of our crops are Polynesian, they're, they're below the ground like the taro and the sweet potato. So it kind of is like an underground storage security, mm. a food security system. Mm. And so preserving is also very important. It's a very important part of the cycle of life because everything here is very seasonal. So it's lovely and organic, low food miles. All of these terms that have been recently coined, we were doing already. Low carbon footprint, low food miles, food minutes here people say. It, mana kind of does drop from the heavens. Our avocado trees are, are, are laden. There's peach blossoms, orange blossoms are around at the moment. So we're looking forward to the first of the season's peaches. Uh, the first flush of the cherry guavas is coming on. We are constantly looking to find nourishment. And with that stuff that goes back to the First Fleet, for example, there are still food plants left from that today that are used, aren't there? Oh my gosh, absolutely, absolutely. So the cherry guava is a prolific bearer of the most beautiful fruit. It's the world's fourth most noxious weed. <laughs> it's highly invasive. But a very tasty one. <laughs> uh, it's saving grace is this proliferation of absolutely beautiful fruit that supports a little cottage industry. So we turn it to guava jelly, which is beautiful on 
put fresh hot buttered scones and, and hot buttered toast in the morning. I think one of the most interesting things about Norfolk is it's not just purely one straight line pattern of settlement. There's many, many different waves of settlement that have all woven together over the years. Yes. And your lineage goes back to the Pitcanners, who are the descendants of the Bounty Mutineers. And they brought some plants with them. In boxes, they bought uh, in soil. Um, we have in, at the back of our yard a pitcan orange, a tree that came through from the pitcan. Um, the oranges are absolutely stunning. So you know what it, you know what this how this place is like. It's like a thousand-year-old storehouse with layers and layers of history. So if we ask ourselves what the Polynesians may have bought, perhaps it was the flax, perhaps it was the giant bamboo, perhaps it was the watercress and the wild mint. They live in permanent watercourses. If you're going to guarantee a, a future, a food future, uh, you would plant, like the taro as well, you would plant in permanent watercourses. When you came back 200 years later, that food store would still be in pristine condition. Mm. And the European version of that, of course, was that the Navy often used to drop things like goats and coconut trees Absolutely. on islands so that shipwreck sailors would have yeah. food. But the Polynesians way before that were doing, doing a similar exactly. sort of thing. Now, do you see it's important to preserve the integrity, not just of these plants, but also the, the stories associated with them and the, the history of that? It is so important. Uh, it's important to protect plant diversity and food diversity. That's why we have these very big seed banks throughout the world. And, and there's, there are problems with maintaining those seed banks. The best way is for a thousand farmers to replant a thousand heirloom varieties year in, year out. Uh, that is the best way to ensure that these, these plants survive and we have a future food store. Now, do you have a couple of favourite plants that you'd like to let folks know about? What's their backstory? A couple of your favourites? I have, I suppose, funny plants that I'm very fond of and one of them is Berker stuff which is a wild tobacco. And I'm rather fond of this because as noxious as this woody weed is, it is not listed on our noxious weeds list. And the reason is it's an incredibly useful plant. So after, after the Second World War in particular, we lost a, a, quite a number of servicemen. The war widows um, would use this very fast growing plant as a, an easy source of kindling and firewood. And its other uh, use is as, as toilet paper. <laughs> so when the, when, the, when the kids were little at school in my mother's generation, um, they would go out and pick some of the, the leaves and then they would mare mare it, they would wither it. And, and it would be a perfect, quite high tensile toilet paper. Um, the downside of this is that if you use the fair, fairy side, you'll get a very itchy bottom. <laughs> so, so you kind of, there's a little bit of local knowledge required to the, uh, you know, the uh, etiquette of toilet paper use in, in, the, in the old days when, when my, my mother was growing up. But I, I'm very fond of this. And my godmother um, always kept a Baker bush in a, this weed, kept this weed in her backyard just in case. Just in case. <laughs> she must have thought that the supermarket might one day. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the mentality is you don't, um, in a little remote place like this, you keep everything just in case. And that's why it's important to preserve, to preserve these. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Rachel. If anyone's on the island, they need to look up Rachel and come along on one of her fantastic history and ethnobotany tours. Um, it was fantastic catching up with you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. 
Norfolk Island has an absolutely beautiful subtropical climate. There's no other way to put it. Summer temperatures range from 20 to 25, while winters are mild at 14 to 18 degrees. Funnily enough, this is a very good range for growing bananas. On Norfolk Isle, bananas are a lot more than just a post-gym snack or a lunchbox filler. They're an absolute staple. Now I'm with one of the island's supremo gardeners who I think it's fair to say is also a cultural and historical custodian and a living legend. Jane Rutledge. Jane, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome, Adam. Welcome back to Norfolk. Thank you. Now, along with your dad, Bubby, you live in and look after the spectacular and historically significant gardens Music Valley. Absolutely gorgeous spot. And that's where we're sitting right now. First off, how about you tell us a little bit about Music Valley? Music Valley is a very natural subtropical garden, a very peaceful, tranquil place, as you would agree, Adam, and a very, very fertile valley that's really got its own microclimate within this valley now. Dad's planted lots of trees in his lifetime and lots of plun, of course, and mm. plun is, is what we call banana and lots of different varieties here too, Adam. Well, that's yeah. the big question. How many varieties do you have growing here in Music Valley? I think we've got around about 20, but there are over 20 different varieties on Norfolk growing here. One of my favorites is for looking at is the red banana or the manila, we call it. But a lot of the plant on Norfolk have developed their own special little names and I actually don't know what the variety of them are, but they've come with the person that's actually bought them. There's a banana we call a Codrington and it was a Dr Codrington who initially <laughs> bought that, that plant here. So it's just kept his name and there's one called Potts, a very well used plant here. And another couple of unusual names is a high plant or a poison plant. And, and I think we call the poison one because that they're more a cooking banana and if you eat it without cooking it, it's actually not that nice, so Pretty yeah. Up. You mentioned the red one, which when the fruit's developing, they look almost black. Now, yeah. and they're definitely not just the classic yellow banana that people think about, are they? No, they're black almost when they're forming and as the bunt matures, it starts to get that little green tinge to it. But then as it ripens, it, it gets the more red, more like the trunk, the whole trunk of the tree is mm. actually red as well. And it really is a nice tree to look at. And the fruit is just quite beautiful when a whole bunch is forming up. They've yeah. got certainly some serious wow appeal. Now, there's a difference between bananas and plantains, aren't there? And the difference in the way they're used and treated and all that sort of thing. Yeah, well, the plantain is more for a cooking plant. But in saying that, my favourite plant for cooking is just the normal Cavendish or the very old-fashioned name for the Cavendish here on Norfolk is what we would say as China. And I don't know where that's actually come from. Or Ross Michael was a, another old variety. And now we've got the William variety here, which matures a little bit quicker than the Cavendish. But the Cavendish is my favourite for all round eating and cooking. The average person's just gonna chow down on a banana or maybe has it with some yogurt or something like that. But the uses are incredibly varied, aren't they? From unripe all the way through to almost black and mushy ready That's for the right. compost. When they're black and mushy is the best time for making a dish we call pilai. And the, the banana can literally be black. And that is the best time because the sugars are very well developed. And we just mash the bananas and add flour to it. And that, that's pilai. 
And the green plum, we make a number of dishes out of it. My favourite is mutter and the other is just pancake. Or a green banana is called pu'uplan. So pu'uplan pancake. And it's grated banana or yola as we call it. And just fried up and it's beautiful. Mada yeah. is beautiful, yeah. especially in, in some coconut milk sauce. It's yeah. like, like little little fluffy dumplings. dumplings yeah, yeah absolutely beautiful. Yeah. That use all the way through from green to black that most people would throw out, that's actually practicality of sustainability in many respects because you might have a banana tree that falls down in a storm when the bananas are still green, but it gives you the capacity to still use that fruit. You're not going to let it go to waste. Or you might find a bunch where everything's nearly rotten and you can still reuse it for something. Exactly. Or, or, you know, if you've got a bunch on a tree, you can start, once the the plant have started filling out, you can start cutting off those green ones and then you can use it before you have to actually cut the whole bunch before it goes yellow or, or red. Now, do you have a few simple banana growing tips for the folks out there that want to get into growing bananas. their own bananas? Plum love water. The more water they can get, the better and bigger your bunches will be. They like lots of fertiliser. I just use the organic stuff like organic extras and your blood and bone and all that sort of stuff. And a high potassium fertiliser is good for plum. But the main thing is plenty of water. Well, Jane, thank you so much. And I reckon I need to come back for another chat sometime soon. And if people want to visit Music Valley when they're on aisle, just ask at the visitor office or with any of the local two operators and they'll get you organised. Thanks, Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Adam. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little wander around Norfolk Island. The next special episode is a packed one too, but you'll just have to listen to find out what's in that. No spoilers here. If you've enjoyed this episode, then make sure you never miss another by clicking subscribe in your podcast store of choice. And don't forget to give us a rating and leave comments to help other people find us and come and join us in the garden. Of course, if you're after a garden fix between episodes, then you can grab a copy of the latest issue of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. You'll find us on Instagram too. Just search BHG Oz. And if you'd like to drop us a line you can give us some feedback have us answer a garden question or just say hi by sending us an email with garden better in the title you'll find the link in the episode info so until next time happy gardening planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.